0: Exodus 20 is the story of the Ten Commandments as Moses is up on the mountain with God and the Israelites are at the base of the mountain. I invite you to hear these words. Then God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself. No form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them, because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. "'Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. "'Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. "'Do not desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. "'When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the horn and the mountain smoking, the people shook with fear and stood at a distance.' They said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid because God has come only to test you and make sure you are always in awe of God so that you don't sin. The people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness in which God was present. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What we aren't going to do today is march through all Ten Commandments with me just explaining to you what they mean. For the problem of the Ten Commandments is never just understanding them, right? I mean, do not murder means don't kill anyone. Honor the Sabbath means to honor the Sabbath. Have no other gods means to have no other allegiances above God. So instead of marching you through the Ten Commandments and giving you a little nugget about what bearing false testimony meant in Israel's context, I would like to present the idea that the Ten Commandments are less like the Ten Best Rules and more like a policy framework. You know when a presidential candidate is asked for their platform of ideas? They are asked their position on a number of issues, like health care and taxation, immigration. The candidates aren't asked to provide every specific law that would make that policy happen. In the same way, the Ten Commandments aren't guidelines for specific action, but they provide the framework for how specific laws can be written. So these Ten Commandments are hugely important. They form the basis, the framework for the 611 or so laws that we'll find in this law code in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But these Ten Commandments don't have magic power in and of themselves. We teach kids these Ten Commandments in Sunday school or at summer camp, and it's like we implicitly think if you do these, then you're good. How many of us have looked at the Ten Commandments and thought, hey, I'm like a six or seven out of ten without even trying? And that's not the point. Kids being able to recite these does not make them a good human. In the same way our country has an obsession with whether or not these get posted in schools or a courthouse. The posting of these 10 commandments in a courthouse does not implicitly influence people. There isn't magic to these 10 commands. Posting them in the courthouse won't stop the lawyers or judges who work there from sending out emails on a Sunday. But if these are policy statements for a framework, they encourage us to think about how we will live into them. Whenever Jesus reflected on the law, he looked into the heart of the law. He didn't just want to know the words, he dug deeper. You have heard it said, he says over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. On Jesus' standard, I'm a murderer and an adulterer many times over. So why does Israel, wandering in the desert, preparing for the promised land, need these commandments? The newly liberated community needs to know how to live together. We have to recognize these people have only known slavery. For 440 years, they lived at the beck and call of their Egyptian slave masters. They lived in Egyptian land with Egyptian culture and Egyptian gods. Simply put, they didn't know how to live together in community. There's maybe no clearer example of this than the chapters immediately following the parting of the Red Sea. The people of Israel literally sound like whiny children on a long car ride. Listen, the whole Israelite community complained or grumbled in some translations against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, Oh, how we wish that the Lord had just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by the pots cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you've brought us out into the desert to starve this whole assembly to death. The Israelites, who have just walked through a sea on dry ground, are complaining and grumbling. It's like you've just cooked dinner for your children, spent time thinking about what they like, and then they tell you that it's disgusting. That's never happened to me. I'm not bitter at all. In the next chapter, we read, But the people were very thirsty for water there, and they complained to Moses, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Are we there yet? Of course, in the midst of this, God provides. Literally, bread on the ground each and every morning, meat at night, water from a rock when Moses just hits it with his staff. But the people could not go on just being a whiny bunch of toddlers. They needed a way to live together, a framework for how to operate. I was thinking about this this week and realizing that my now kindergartner had a class promise that they developed and made in their four-year-old pre-K class. So I pulled up the picture of that class promise this week. On it they said, we promise to, one, make good choices, two, share with our friends, three, not hurt someone, four, follow directions. Five, be nice to others. Six, be a good listener. Seven, not throw things. Eight, play with each other. Nine, do our best work. And ten, help each other. Then they all put their handprint in, in paint on this class promise. And they renewed it and reviewed it all of the time, like each and every morning at their morning meeting, and the class promise was at the center. A pre-K class needs to live together. So does a community of thousands wandering in the desert. So do we in the midst of all of our communities. And every community needs guardrails. Left without the guidance of laws or rules or a community covenant, chaos reigns. I read the golden calf story from Exodus 32 today to display just that. This story happens literally as Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the covenant from God. The people are camped out at the base of the mountain. They could see the cloud on top of the mountain the whole time while Moses is with God. But they gather around Aaron and say that they need gods who can lead them. And they have forgotten what happened to this man, Moses, the one who went up on the mountain of God and was going to speak on their behalf to God. And in either a moment of stupidity or a rush of power, Aaron asks for all of the gold in the people's tents. And Aaron melts the gold down and forms the image of a calf. And the Israelites declare these are your gods Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now let's stop right there. For the 10 commandments passage begins how? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then it continues, you must not have you must have no other gods before me. Literally the first words out of God's mouth in the 10 commandments are the first thing that the community breaks. When the people worship around this golden calf, they may have been following worship practices of their Egyptian way of life. They may have thought that they were even doing good. But they are liberated from those ways. It is possible to read this first command of having no other gods, not as a statement about God's jealousy. Rather, it could be presented like this. Good news. You don't have to serve other gods now, offering the right sacrifices and doing the right things to please each and every one. Only serve me, now that you're liberated. In our story, the Israelites look amazingly stupid. But we have golden calves, do we not? We forget what God God has done for us, and we place our security and hope in other things and in other gods all of the time. Walter Brueggemann, a great Old Testament scholar, says it this way. He says, We have always lived in a world of options, alternative choices, and gods who make powerful, competing appeals. It does us no good to pretend there are no other offers of well being, joy, and security. End quote. If we don't have guardrails, if we don't eventually have laws about worship, about how the tabernacle will function, then we fall prey to making our own gods, to lying to ourselves like Aaron who, after fashioning the statue himself, told Moses, Out came this calf. These guardrails are not intrusive to the community. They are for the community's life and well-being. They are for the flourishing of life together. When we look at the Ten Commandments, it is often understood there were two tablets. But rather than numbers 1 through 5 and 6 to 10, the commandments seem split by theme. The first tablet is about the community's relationship to God. It's about worship. The second tablet is about the community's relationship to each other. It's about ethics. Commandments 1 through 3 are obviously about the community and God. No other gods, no idols or image to try to to domesticate or control God. And don't use God's name as a means to an end. Likewise, Commandments 5 through 10 are about how we live in community. It begins with the command to honor parents. And then, Commandments 6 through 8 are the terse statements about murder, adultery, and stealing. We move then to a description about false testimony, which is about the need for a fair court system where truth is upheld. And finally, the 10th commandment about coveting and economic desire and greed. You may notice that one command in my description is missing the 4th commandment. The Sabbath commandment serves as a bridge between these two tablets. On one hand, Sabbath is completely about honoring God. It is a day for rest, just like God did on the seventh day of creation. On the other hand, the Sabbath is all about how the community lives together. For the person in charge was to grant everyone else, including his animals, rest on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath stands in between the two worlds, and we see this truth. How we worship affects how we live in community. The power of the Ten Commandments is found in this. All places, and in every commandment, we see God's value for life. The interplay of these two tablets is all about life. If we believe every person is sacred and made in the image of God, then we won't murder, commit adultery, or steal. Those three commands, simply do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, these three commands affect the most vulnerable people in the community. They are there for the protection of the weaker members of the community. If we believe God provides our every need, then we are able to take Sabbath and encourage others to take Sabbath rest. If we are more than what we produce, then we can have Sabbath rest. If we are more than the bricks we make for Pharaoh, then we can understand the value of life that God gives We are more than economic machines. We have the breath of God, the breath of life in us. That's what the Ten Commandments proclaim. If we love God, the giver of life, then we always value life. That's the point of the Ten Commandments. All other laws that flow from these policies are about life. What binds your communities together? By communities, I mean all of the groups that you participate in life together. Yes, we have laws that bind our society together, even ones about how you might have to participate in a homeowner's agreement. But how about the communities that are most dear? What binds those communities together? Is there a value for life within your family and how you treat one another? Just because we're related doesn't always mean we treat each other well. In our church, is there a dignity and respect granted to each person that honors the covenant between us and God? Just because we sit in the same sanctuary doesn't mean that we value each person. How we live together matters. When there is fracturing, division, or estrangement within our communities, we hurt. And when we don't address the hurt, It intensifies and multiplies. You may have heard this saying before, hurt people hurt people. And it's true. In whatever community we find ourselves in, so I encourage us to learn from this value of life that we see demonstrated from God to us, and we also hear from God's hope for how we live with one another. Our story doesn't stop here with the giving of the covenant. It's only the beginning But we will see how not valuing God's greatest gift of life has ramifications for all of Israel and all of humanity. I invite you to pray with me. Lord of life, we recognize that this life that you have given to us through the breath that you breathed first into Adam is the same gift that we have today. And God oftentimes We live without valuing that very gift. And God, we recognize that when we don't recognize the giver of that life, and we don't recognize the gift of life that lies within one another, we do immense damage to our relationship with you and to our relationship with each other. Help us, oh God, to be restored back to life by you, and then to be able to restore with your help, our relationships with each other. In Christ's holy name, amen.